0: In the fall of 2017, in the first few months of 2018, we spent a sermon series together considering Genesis 1 to 3, the first three books, of course, of the Bible. Now, five years later, we return to Genesis, picking up where we left off in Chapter 4. Now, this is a new sermon series we're starting today. Uh, my goal is to spend much of our winter and early spring together in these first chapters of the Scriptures, in the Bible's first book, planning to cover in some detail Genesis 4 through 12. Our sermon text this morning is a very short one. It's found in Genesis 4, verse 1. Listen carefully now to God's holy and inerrant word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts gathered here in your presence would be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I ask this through our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Every time I preach, I conclude the reading of the sermon text with this simple phrase, a phrase I just said, a phrase that I learned from my RUF, that is Reformed University Fellowship Campus Pastor when I was a college student. It's a phrase that really impacted me at the time, that really helped shape me and my attitude toward God's word. And I hope it's helpful for you to hear Sunday by Sunday as well. I say, thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. It's an important phrase because as modern people, we have a natural disposition to be skeptical Excuse me. Be skeptical about anyone who claims to be telling us the truth, right? As soon as, as soon as someone starts saying, "Now I've got I've got some truth for you," like we get suspicious, right? What does this person up to? It doesn't matter where we get our news from. We know there is a slant. There are things they're not telling us. There are things they are emphasizing over other things. There is a bias, a subtle or not so subtle distortion of the truth to fit someone's agenda. It doesn't matter if it's a textbook or a memoir or a prize award-winning a award narrative of history. We're always asking ourselves this question. What is this author up to? What is this person doing? How is he or she coloring the facts? What liberties are they taking with the truth in order to convince me of what they're trying to say? And, and friends, this kind of skepticism is understandable. It is not unrealistic. It is not crazy. Because one of the most fundamental things that is true about human beings is that human beings often lie. They don't tell the truth. They don't tell all of it. Or they say things that are false. And they know they are false. Human beings lie maliciously. Yes, for power and gain and protection. But even more frightening, human, bi- human beings lie instinctively without even realizing exactly what they're doing. They think they're telling the truth when they're not. The scriptures, remember, in Jeremiah instruct us and say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's kind of exhausting, really, if you think about it, all this work that we all do all the time to try to separate truth from error or deception, the way that we must constantly evaluate even our own words to try to distinguish the truth from error. But in contrast to all that, we believe that the scriptures speak to us in a different way kind of way a fundamentally different kind of way than all other human speech they are true there is no deception in them there is no error there is no ulterior ulterior motives and so when you hear those words thus far the reading of God's word it is absolutely true and it is given to you because your father in heaven loves you it should feel like relief it should feel like okay now I can relax it should feel like permission to turn off that part of your brain that is always trying to discern everyone's potential agenda because here When we read from God's word, when we read from the scriptures, we can be confident, we can be assured that what God says is absolutely true. And I want to contend this morning as we begin this new sermon series on the early parts of the book of Genesis that this reality of the truth of God's word applies to the book of Genesis just as much as it does to every other Part of God's Word, in particular, that these early chapters of Genesis are absolutely true. Genesis 1 through 11, you may know this, that portion of the scriptures that record the events from creation to the call of Abraham, are often referred to as primeval history by Bible scholars. And it's not just so called liberal or progressive theologians who question their historicity. Increasingly, even evangelical scholars wonder, does it really matter if the events of Genesis 1 to 11 actually took place in the way that they are described as happening? Right, what does this matter, the argument goes, if this is real history, as long as we acknowledge that the principles behind the stories convey truth especially as they show us God's character, the, the reality of human sin and God's plan for redemption. Now, maybe this kind of debate seems esoteric to you, but I, I promise you it matters. It matters. And at the heart of the argument over the historicity of texts like Genesis 1 to 11 is this question. The question is, what kind of book is the Bible really? Really? What is it actually up to? Are the scriptures just given to us that we might glean divine truth about salvation so that we might know how to be saved? Is that what the scriptures are for? Are the scriptures just given to us that we might know what we need to believe so that our souls can go to heaven when we die? You might call this a kind of narrow understanding of what the scriptures are intended for. But on the other hand, are the scriptures given to us so that we might know not only how to be saved, but also more than that, how to live wisely in every area of our lives? In other words, are the scriptures not just about salvation, or are they also about everything else as well? Yes, including salvation, but also all the rest of our lives are addressed in the scriptures. That's the second argument. That's the way that I would lean. That's the way I believe the scriptures themselves encourage us to interpret them and understand them. Psalm 119, perhaps the most extended meditation on scripture in all of the scriptures, teaches us in this way, I think. You see, it's clear if you take the time to read, and I would encourage you to do so, to read Psalm 119. It'll take you a little bit from verses 1 to 176, you'll see that the psalmist understands that the scriptures are not simply given to him so that he might know how his sins could be forgiven. In fact, there's very little discussion about the forgiveness of sins in Psalm 119. No, what the psalmist emphasizes in this longest and arguably greatest of all the psalms is the comprehensive value and beauty of the scriptures, how it touches all aspects of his life how he meditates on it, because it it addresses everything that he encounters. The scriptures give me life, the psalmist says. They teach me the way of purity and holiness, he says. The scriptures give me knowledge, the psalmist says. He says, the scriptures are for me more to be valued than any amount of gold or silver. And he means that. The psalmist says, the scriptures are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They are sweeter, he says, than honey on my lips. The scriptures, the psalmist says, are his constant meditation. For they, and this is interesting, he says, just reading the scriptures gives me more understanding than all human teachers. It's fascinating. The scriptures, the psalmist says, make him wise even more wise than the aged, the elders, those who have lived a much longer time. And again and again, the psalmist says, the scriptures are truth. They are truth. It's clear from Psalm 119 that the psalmist believes that the Bible is intended to speak to the whole of his life, not simply the things that are necessary for him to know in order to be saved. And I would argue, friends, that this is exactly what the scriptures are for. They are given to us to teach us everything that we might need to know about the world, either explicitly or by deduction from what they say. There's a long quote on the back of your order of worship. I want to read it to you just for a moment here. The 20th century theologian, Cornelius Van Til, he puts it this way. He says, the Bible is thought of as authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, Van Til says, it speaks of everything. We do not mean, to be clear, that it speaks of football games, of Adams, etc., directly, but we do mean that it speaks of everything, either directly or by implication, It tells us not only of the Christ and his work, it also tells us who God is and where the universe about us has come from. It tells us about theism as well as about Christianity. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. Moreover, and this is important, the information on these subjects is woven into an inextricable whole. You can't separate out the parts that are about salvation, the parts that are about everything else. It is only if you reject the Bible as the word of God that you can separate the so-called religious and moral instruction of the Bible from what it says, for example, about the physical universe. Beloved, the Bible is about everything. It's where we learn not only about salvation from God, but it's also where we learn from God about marriage and parenting and work and economics and law and journalism and sex and politics and animals and mountains and art and farming and music and every other kind of thing we might ever get up to. The Bible is where we learn about all of those things. And so for me, this is why it matters whether Genesis 1 through 11 gives us a true history of the world. It matters because God doesn't only want us to go to heaven when we die. Yes, he wants that, but he wants so much more. God does not want us, he does not want you Beloved, to remain ignorant about the earliest days of the human race. He wants you to know about them because you are human. God wants you to know the true history of the world, and so he wrote it down so that you would have it. God wants you to know the truth about who you are and what the world is actually like and what it means to live with wisdom in relationship to your creator and his creation. Now, to be clear, God giving us the true history of the world here in Genesis 1-11 means, in my view, that Adam and Eve are, in fact, real historical persons. And it is from these two historical persons that every human being alive today is descended. I believe that. And because I believe God is giving us a true history of the world here in Genesis 1 through 11, I think that Cain really did found very soon after the events, the fall of the human race, a city called Enoch, as Genesis 4 tells us he did, which means that human beings actually possessed technology and culture and language and all sorts of things far more quickly than many uh, would believe or advance in our age. In addition, because I believe that God is giving us a true history of the world here in these first chapters in Genesis, I believe that the genealogies in Genesis 5, 10, and 11 actually give us a faithful and detailed chronology of all the years that have passed since Adam's creation and the birth of Abraham, giving us the ability to define more or less precisely how old the human race actually is. God gave us these genealogies with a very specific accounting of the years between one generation and the next. It's very specific. Because time matters to God. And he wants time and history to matter to us. And he wants us to understand who we are and how long we've been here. And who our forefathers actually are. And God giving us the true history of the world means also that I believe that God judged all of humanity in a global flood, saving only Noah and his family from destruction. And to be clear, I think we can have confidence. That these things are true not only because we believe the bible is true but also because we know that the bible is given to us for this very purpose that we might have history given to us by god so that we might grow in wisdom so that we might not be left in ignorance but that we might have knowledge not only regarding our salvation but also that we might know the true history of the world in the history of the human race. And if we take the scriptures seriously in this way, we'll find, I think, that these earliest chapters of the Bible have so much more to say to us than just a picture of salvation. They are inexhaustibly rich, all of the scriptures, yes, but in some ways, especially these early chapters. They give us so much insight into who we are as human beings, uh, what this world is that God has made us and put us in. They are given to us that we might know all of these things that we might be wise because it is here in these earliest chapters of the scriptures that God reveals the fundamental truths about human nature and human suffering and human culture and God's redemption. Truths that are then worked out and developed at length all throughout the rest of the Bible. It is hard to find any theme in the scriptures that is not included in seed form in these earliest chapters of Genesis. It is the book of beginnings. And so we are going to take our time with Genesis 4 through 12. We're not going to speed through these chapters. We're going to try to uncover as many as we can, as much as we can, of the details of these verses and see what they have to teach us about everything. And that is why this morning, in the minutes that are remaining, we're just going to cover one verse. Because this one verse contains so much about fundamental aspects of what it means to be human. Sexuality and procreation and childbirth. All of that is disclosed to us here in this text, in this verse You see, in our world today, there's so much confusion about sexuality, right? What is sex for? Is it just about pleasure? Is it how we express our fundamental identities? Is it simply about power? Well, friends, the Bible doesn't want us to be ignorant about these things. It wants us to know about sex. The scriptures are about everything, and that means they are given to us for wisdom in all things, including our sexuality. And that's why the first words of the scripture which describe life outside of Eden, after the fall, the world in which we all live, read in this way, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Now it might seem simple, but that phrase, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, is full of meaning, full of wisdom. On the one hand, that phrase speaks to us of God's kindness. Remember, the final verses of Genesis 3 describe God driving out Adam and Eve from the garden because of their sin and rebellion and placing a flaming sword at the entrance so that they could not return. Now, the question arises, what would life be like outside of Eden? Cold and hopeless and dark, without joy or goodness? What was God sending them out to experience No, we find here immediately that God's grace is not only about salvation and escaping to heaven. No, God's grace is also, friends, found in the way that he is kind to us, even in the midst of our life in this world, which is inevitably tainted and corrupted by sin. God still is kind to us here. And we know this because the scripture teaches us Adam knew Eve, his wife. You see that phrase, it, it harkens back to Genesis two, where we read that, that after Eve was presented to Adam, following her being fashioned from his rib, he said, the, the narrator says, the man and his wife were then both naked and not ashamed. Now, now don't misunderstand me. The curses in Genesis 3 are real. None of us, even the best of marriages, can be naked and unashamed with one another in the way that Adam and Eve had the opportunity to experience before sin entered entered the world. And yet, notice this. In the midst of their sinfulness, in the midst of their rebellion, in God's kindness, Adam knew Eve his wife he knew her real intimacy with one another is still available to us in this world despite sin despite corruption real knowledge despite our sin despite our fear god gives us grace this phrase adam knew Eve, his wife, also teaches us something fundamental about human sexuality. Interestingly, the scriptures use to know as a verb for sexual intercourse only, only in the context of marriage. Now, other kinds of sexual relationships are possible, of course. The Bible is aware of these things. But it only describes sexual intimacy as a man knowing a woman in the context of marriage. It's interesting. For example, later in Genesis, when Abraham takes Hagar, a woman who was not his wife, into his bed, the Bible does not say that he knew her. It simply says that Abraham went into Hagar. It does not say, and Abraham knew Hagar. And that is because the scriptures reserve this kind of evocative language only for the exclusive marriage covenant that exists between a man and a woman. Sex, as it turns out, if we listen to the scriptures is not just about pleasure or power or identity or even, as it turns about, just about procreation. No, sex is also given to us for knowledge, for intimacy, for recognition, and this kind of knowledge is available only to those who have been joined together in marriage. In other words, the reason we can be confident that God intends sex only to be experienced between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage is not only because Leviticus goes to great painstaking lengths to prohibit every other kind of sexual relationship, right? Leviticus is excluding everything else. But we know that the Bible reserves sex for marriage because the Bible only uses this verb, to know, as a description of sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. But this first verse in Genesis 4 does not only give us wisdom about sexuality, it also is given to us that we might have wisdom about procreation and childbirth. The whole verse reads this way. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now again, the first thing the second half of this verse teaches us is about God's kindness. God might in his sovereignty have extinguished humanity after the sin of Adam and Eve. But here outside the garden, the first thing we discover is that God is kind. And his kindness is revealed in this way. He grants unto humanity the capacity to conceive and bear new life that there might be descendants of Adam and Eve. Yes, they would die but not before they gave life to a new generation. The human race would not end with them. That's a profound thing to notice here. But how does this happen? This giving of life to someone else, a baby being born, is it merely a biological process? No. Human life, Genesis 4 teaches us, in this case, and in every case, is due to the direct Intervention and grace of the Lord. Listen to Eve. Right right here, she opens her mouth and she says she names her son Cain for this reason. Because I have gotten a man. How? With the help of Yahweh. With the help of the Lord. Indeed, Eve, as Adam calls her in Genesis 3, is the mother of all living. But how does she do it? How does it happen? Not on her own strength, not on her own power. No, she says we will only receive children with the help of the Lord, with his intervention, with his working. In our own strength, we cannot do it. We cannot produce human life on our own. It is only with the help of God, the God who made heaven and earth, that conception and pregnancy and childbirth take place at all. Beloved, I want to be gentle here because I know there are so many stories in this sanctuary that revolve around these sorts of things, these kinds of issues around conception and pregnancy and childbirth. For my own personal story and my marriage and my years of counseling as a pastor, I will say I don't think that there is an experience available to human beings in this world that teaches us more about how fundamentally helpless we are than the experience of seeking to conceive and bear children into this world. If you and your spouse have been able to have children easily and without any real difficulties, that is amazing. That is wonderful. Of course, your experience has only taken place because of God's extravagant kindness. You should know that. And you should also know that that is very much the exception to the rule. So many of our stories, my own included, include the difficulties, the the horrific, painful difficulties of infertility or miscarriage or difficulty in childbirth. We cannot protect ourselves in this world from this kind of vulnerability and danger. It is baked into the experience. And that is because God has designed the world in this way such that conception and pregnancy and childbirth would only take place with his help, with his provision, with his intervention. And why that is the case, I don't fully know or understand personally. But I know that it is true from my own experience, and I know it because the scriptures, which teach us about everything, Teach us that it is only with the help of the Lord that we will bring children into this world. And I suspect at least part of the reason that God has designed the world in this way has to do with teaching us in this most intimate of experiences what it is to trust and depend on him for everything including and especially the gift of children. And in doing so, we might learn that God and God alone holds the power of life. Only God has this power. That we might wonder at his sovereignty and that we might praise him for his mercy and kindness. Listen again to Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Beloved, this short verse is so full of mystery and meaning and wisdom and underneath it all, the kindness of God. And really, we've only begun to scratch the surface of it in our brief time together this morning. But what I want you to see above all things is that all the scriptures are like this. Every verse, every chapter of God's word is full of treasure and wisdom and truth and grace. And as such, the scriptures are indeed more valuable to us than any amount of earthly riches. They are sweeter than honey on our lips. Because in these pages, in these divinely inspired words, we have not only been given all that we need to know for salvation, we have also been given by God's grace the true history of the world, which is in the end the true story of God's kindness to the world that he loves. Because of all the scriptures, this is always true. They are absolutely true. And they are given to us because our Father in heaven loves us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this day for your kindness to us. And speaking words of truth. Father, we are so grateful that there is somewhere we can go to hear true things. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts of openness and eagerness to hear and read and learn from your word. That you might not only save us from hell and death, but that you might make us wise. You might make us to grow in maturity in Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.